0: Well, thanks Austin for having me on your podcast today. It's quite an honor to be amongst all the people that you have. As you know, I'm CEO of Alligator Tech. It's a company I started 24 years ago. Oftentimes people ask, how did you come up with the name? I founded this out of my bedroom and at the time I was looking for a name that was catchy and there were a lot of names out there with CompU this or micro this. So Microsoft, Micro H, CompUsoft, CompUSA. I was looking for something that would send us apart. And so we chose Alligator. And our name of the company at the time was Alligator Computer Systems. We focused on putting Byte into your productivity. So Byte spelled B-Y-T-E. So clever. I got it. That's, uh, that's how we came to be. And we are based here in Chicago, not in Florida, like some may assume.
1: Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and who you are?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So born in Ohio, in Cincinnati, but I've grown up in and around Chicago since I was five. Went to University of Chicago and then was out east for a while in New York at Stony Brook and then came back, worked in banking for a short while and then started Alligator Tech. My dad had worked in corporate America his whole life. He saw that I might not fit that mold of climbing the corporate ladder. So he encouraged me to start right out of school. So
1: what did he see in you that he didn't think that you would be
0: able to climb the corporate ladder? I think he saw two things. One, he had hit a ceiling himself. and He thought that there was a good chance that I might hit it. And I think he also knew that he had more patience than I did. I was always a little impetuous, a little bit more restless. I think he thought I would get frustrated sooner. So he knew that if I, once I got saddled with, you know, a mortgage and kids and and life that I may not be able to break free. So he encouraged me to start before all that happened.
1: Did you think he wanted to live, I guess, somewhat vicariously through you being able to do that? I would.
0: In fact, he saw it as partly perhaps his exit strategy as well, because if I could grow something, then perhaps he could participate. And you're right. He wanted to live some do some things. He had started a company when he was younger and it never took off. I think that might be very well the case. How about your family background? I mean, are they from Chicago? Yeah. So my parents are, um, I guess I'm uh, first generation. My parents came over in the early sixties. They both were straight from India. My dad did his graduate degree here. So I was born in Cincinnati. I have one sibling, one sister grew up here in the, in the Chicago market.
1: Where did you go to college from Chicago?
0: Yeah. So I went to the university of Chicago in Hyde park, did a degree in applied math of all degrees. And so that got to your interest in computers? Yeah, I always knew that I tinkered with computers. I'm one of those kids that had a Commodore 64 and Atari and played with those on the side. But I always thought that it was a glorified calculator, meaning I always thought that technology was an enabler to do something, but that you really needed to figure out what you wanted to do and let technology be the enabler. So I didn't want to be that guy that was a tech guy. So I went to school for a liberal arts degree, and that's why I specialized in
1: math. You're specialized in math at that point, And so at what point did you actually start your company? Did you actually go work for another company at first or did you start Alligator Tech right then?
0: No, no. So I finished my math degree, went out to New York, got a degree in computer science. And then I came back, worked in banking for a short while for a international bank in Chicago. And then I started. So pretty much within a year of graduating with my master's is when I started.
1: Did you learn anything at that bank?
0: I learned a little bit about corporate America, what it's like to be in a bureaucracy, to do what you're told and sort of fit into a, a box. Yeah, I guess you
1: didn't enjoy that at that point, And that's when you said, let's go ahead and do my own thing. I hark back to if you ever
0: watch Star Trek and you think about how James Kirk won the command of his vessel to pass the exam. And he basically had to rewire the exam in order to have his own rules so he could win and beat the exam. And I always thought of entrepreneurship as the ability to kind of hardware or rewire the game to be what you want it to be versus having to fit into someone else's paradigm.
1: Did you save up your money while you were at the old company?
0: Yeah, so I didn't work long enough to really save up any money, which is why I started out of a spare bedroom. I basically lived at home. My expenses, my room and board were paid for, and I simply kind of started from scratch. I think that first year in business, we did 30000 in revenue. Did you
1: feel successful
0: at that point? I felt like I was on the move, but no, I didn't feel successful because I knew that it was a long road. I think I didn't have a lot of peer support, and that's something that I have today through some organizations I'm involved in. But back then, I felt very much alone and therefore always felt like I could have and should have done more sooner.
1: No. Thank you for revealing that. I think that's why a lot of the people who are listening are listening because they kind of feel that way. Could you expand on that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, I think there's a principle called falling into the gap. It really looks at the fact when you look as a small child out at the horizon and you see the sun, you know that no matter how far you run, you're never really going to catch that, you know, get to the sun, right, or reach the horizon. But our goals are a lot like that. And what often happens is we set goals, and I've done this, I set goals, and then I don't reach them. And then I feel very badly about them and I fall into what we call the gap. Now, you know, we set goals when we're looking forward, but we measure looking backward. In other words, yes, I said I would be 25% higher in revenue this year than last year. But because we set that goal, look, we're only 15% higher. Recognizing and taking stock in what works, but setting the goals looking forward. As I tell you, I'm reminding myself again and again.
1: When you're at home with your parents, it said, did you have any friends that were?
0: You said you didn't have a lot of peers at that point? What did that feel like? Yeah, it felt a bit lonely. It's tough when you're 23 and not having any peers that are, you know, everyone I had gone to school with was either working, many of them went into medicine. So they were all on these pre-subscribed paths. And I was sort of charting my own path, not really knowing what the next step is.
1: I guess after that first year, I would have felt successful being in your shoes. At least it stinks that maybe you're at your parents' house. But so that's what I'm just trying to gauge is that did you feel dejected at all or happy because you're at home? But at the same time, I could see from your viewpoint that at least you're making money at that point and hoping what would happen next.
0: I always had this picture in my mind that success meant having an office in an office building, having a stable of employees. Since I was working from home, very little revenue and the fact that I was on my own, it didn't feel as complete. That was my challenge.
1: After that first year, what happened then? And can you tell us what year this was so we get a better time frame? This was 93.
0: nineteen ninety three. I see ourselves in four iterations for our company. The first iteration version 1.0 lasted about 11 years. That. Started in 93 and lasted up till 2003. That period of time was when it was very much continuing. I did move out of my parents' bedroom, moved into my own house, but then was still working out of a bedroom in my in my new house. It was more stitching together subcontractors and other players to build an ecosystem as opposed to really a true company.
1: Did you feel lonelier then when you moved out of your parents' house? And was that year two that you did that? Or when exactly did that happen?
0: That happened probably in year, uh, let's see, year three. I didn't because now I felt a measure of success because it was moved on and had some capital, had some assets, you know, and here I was kind of breaking on my own. I would say that by the time... I got into the year 95, which was two years later. We landed a big contract. It was a six-figure contract. That was when I felt a little bit of like we were taking off. That first two years was much tougher.
1: And then, did you have a peer group at that point, too? Because you talked about now that you're involved with those, I guess, to try to help you feel less lonely, if you will.
0: Yeah, I I didn't. You know, I joined a local chamber of commerce and it was a chamber of commerce that was a regional chamber. So it featured about 69 communities. And so it had a little more breadth than, let's say, the smaller merchant-based ones that you find in a lot of municipalities. And through there, I got a chance to meet a lot of different business owners as well as execs. And so that was my level of fellowship that I started to have. I still wouldn't call them peers, but they at least were community.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about your company at that point? What you were doing, if you're still doing the same thing today, and maybe where you're making business from there?
0: Our company at the time was Alligator Computer Systems. It was a little bit about AFAB, anything for a buck. We moved on to really looking at how could software help companies. And today it's changed to really looking at a company's processes to understand where's the bottleneck in a process. And how could we maybe automate that process? First, taking stock of what processes are stymied, what's holding a company back, and trying to see how do we remove the bottlenecks to really move that forward.
1: And you're talking about any processes or is this just computer-based processing?
0: Yeah, it's any process. So the way in which we start is our business architects come in, They're not technologists, but rather people who understand business. And they come in and understand a process. It may be in logistics and transportation, supply chain. It may be in a host of different areas. Their point is just simply to look and see what's being done manually, what's perhaps being done in an Excel spreadsheet that could be automated. And that's where we start. We first want to figure out what's the ideal process and then figure out how do we automate that process.
1: Well, could you walk us through that first six-figure contract, exactly like what you were doing, how you are able to pretend I'm the guy and that you're selling us on it and what you actually ended up doing?
0: Yeah. So this was at a time when the steel industry was in its prime. One of the things that steel industries at the time were challenged with was how they handled payment. How do they pay their people? People were paid not only an hourly wage, but they were paid incentives. Incentives ranged from piecemeal work about how many different objects were run through. So there was piecework. There was also gain sharing, like looking at the collective and how the company did. And so what had happened is the steel company starting in the 1930s had put together a number of incentive plans, and it was just heroic to be able to do payroll every two weeks. And so we basically deconstructed every one of those processes to say, how can we automate this so you're not having to go through some, yes, John, every time you open the garage door, We're going to pay you another nickel.
1: Was that the first like big type of company you were working with? Was there just different types of industries that you were jumping around in when you were trying to help them?
0: Yeah, so it was exactly that. It was a lot of different industries. We were more horizontal than we were vertical. It was really focused around where could we find opportunities to help a company scale.
1: If we want to go ahead and close down kind of the first 11 years that what you call stage one, looking back, what do you think you learned during those point before you moved to stage two?
0: In that period, I learned the power of being tenacious, being really going for a goal and just being relentless in how you pursue that, right? Just staying, playing the long game to say, we're going to figure out a way, being patient. How were you relentless? Yeah. So every year was a challenge, right? Because it was a matter of finding revenue, executing on that revenue. There was always in the back of my mind whether or not this was going to pay off. I enjoyed the lifestyle business that I had. That's exactly what it was, was a lifestyle.
1: And for people who might not know what a lifestyle business is, could you tell us?
0: Yeah. And so in my definition, a lifestyle business is one that provides a nice income, offers the flexibility to be able to call your own shots. But doesn't necessarily scale, because if you were to scale, it would, might mean you have to make some sacrifices along the way.
1: I guess you're talking about six figures. So when we're talking about 33 years old is when you kind of jump to stage two, you're making six figures, you say, at that point? Are we talking low, high? Can we give a ballpark?
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's where I was. I was in kind of a low six figures by then.
1: And then we're talking about the transition. What was the transition to stage two? What does that incorporate?
0: Yeah, so at stage two, it was the awareness that look in order to really be able to grow, we're going to need to take on employees, and we're going to need those employees in order to help us be able to do more and achieve more. We went ahead and purchased an office building, took on staff, and quickly got to a point where we were about 25 people. Were you scared of doing that? We were. I would say that taking on employees was always the unknown for me. I recognized the need, but I didn't necessarily... I had no background, so I would come straight out of education and jumped into business. I didn't really have experience around management or leadership.
1: I guess at that point before, when you said 25 people, was it just contractors? So that was kind of the difference. Now you're finally hiring full staff people to be full-time? Right, exactly.
0: Yep. Obviously, there's mentorship, performance evaluations, incenting people to be with you, wanting to show up for your company versus another company each day.
1: Was that difficult for you to get your arms around being, it sounds like you're an efficiency guy, right? Because that's that's your whole company.
0: Yeah, so obviously I'm an analytical guy coming from my math background. This idea of growing, engaging people, I mean, I enjoy people, but it wasn't something I was familiar with.
1: If we don't mind, let's talk about that a little bit more, because I think I might come from a similar kind of concept or background where you're thinking, okay, if you're just paying someone per hour, no matter what, you think that they're going to go ahead and try as hard as they can or that you don't think about company culture and all that other type of things. And I think there's like a point where that kind of clicks on that you realize you have to worry more about that as well versus just trying to be as efficient all the time.
0: That's precisely right. I spent that five years growing the organization, but not really understanding anything about the word culture or the value of culture. For me, it was very much a transactional relationship. I pay you, you come to the office, you perform. I then pay you again the next week and you repeat it all over again. The whole idea of the value in human capital was foreign to me. And what do you mean by human capital? So the idea that people are our biggest asset, that without them, We could not grow to where we want to get to. The idea that treating people as enablers to be a part of a family and a culture where they want to thrive and grow, and that obviously being paid a fair wage is important, but that's not the main and only driver to getting where they want to get there in their life.
1: So was there like an exact moment that you can think of that when you made that realization? Because I don't want you to feel like you're alone kind of thinking that. I actually think the exact same way. When I had that moment, I was like, I'm just trying to be as efficient as I can. I'm paying these people to do this work a good wage or whatever is good enough. Then, like I said, there's a point in time that you realize, okay, it's not all about that. It's not that yeah, I don't like people or that you don't like people. It's just when you're just trying to thinking business-wise, you're thinking numbers and keep doing that. And the whole thing about management or doing values is a like foreign concept.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I would say the catalyst was that we joined a peer organization called Entrepreneur's Organization, known as EO. And so EO has about 10,000 members worldwide. And I came to know about EO about at that juncture. So first 11 years, network of subcontractors, version 1.0. The next five was around having employees, but not necessarily valuing them as much as they could. Of this last seven years in that kind of takes us to version three the tipping point of version three was joining entrepreneurs eo and seeing how other companies were growing and scaling and recognizing a whole new body of work a body of knowledge
1: that's when you actually started implementing the actual company values if you will versus yeah so the version two was just an actual hiring And then that was your kind of, okay, I'm doing full-time, but after five years of that, basically that's when you had the realization you needed to start worrying about actually company culture. Yeah,
0: I think it started with the understanding that when we start to stratify employees and you classify people as A players, B players, and C players, that you're going to have different levels of expectations from those. It was with that, that we then moved to core values and culture and vision.
1: Let's talk about what year it is at this point, how many employees you have, hopefully get an idea of revenue.
0: Yeah, so this was in two thousand eleven. In two thousand eleven we are probably at about probably at about thirty employees by then. We have just started to recognize that there's attrition and that we're getting people who may not stick around for the long haul. And so that's when we decided and this was like I said, two thousand eleven.
1: Were you doing all the hiring then?
0: I was. Yes, I was personally involved. As they say, if you look at a bottle, pop bottle, and you look at where the blockage is, it's always at the top. That was no different for our company.
1: What did you learn from that hiring when, I guess, you said people started kind of leaving at that point?
0: Yeah, I recognized, you know, it was really around encouraging people, but also setting expectations for people. So the idea behind a C player, as I've defined it, is someone that will show up at the time you've asked them to and they'll depart but they're always going to do the bare minimum to keep the job. A B player will step up and do a little bit more, but they're only going to do what's asked. They're not going to go above and beyond. And an A player is the kind of individual where if you approach them on Friday afternoon about something that's due on Monday, they're either going to tell you, I already finished it. I already thought about it. It's already packaged. Or they're going to be like, oh my gosh, I got to get this done. I'm so sorry. I didn't think of it sooner. I'll make it happen over the weekend. You'll have it Monday. And that level of passion that comes from an A player is somebody that wants to go to war with you because they feel like they believe in the mission of the company and they're just so jazzed to be a part of it. How do you find A players? We use a process called top rating. It's an interviewing process that is in a book written by uh, Brad Smart. It says that about 25% of the people you look at in the market are going to be C, about 50% are going to be B. And then there's about 25% that are A. And so to your point, we just called through a lot of people in order to get there.
1: How long did it take you to make those transition? You're saying in 2011, this is still phase three, if you will. What was the percentage you said you would have of C players, B players, and A players at that point?
0: We probably at that point, we probably had about probably right around the metric that was there. We probably had about 25% that were C. We had 50% that were B, and then we had 25% that were A. At that point, was it called top rating, you're saying? But top grading. Grading, great. Yeah. Okay, so can you just give us a
1: quick synopsis of what that was and
0: when you started, Yeah, what do you do? So the process really centers around having an individual that you're considering for hire really fill out a questionnaire that details every position they've held since high school and to the current day. And so if you're a senior individual, this could mean... You've had eight or nine roles since graduating high school. And then as part of the top grading interview, you simply roll through each of those questions around what did you do in that role? How would you rate your manager? And how did your manager rate you? So by the time you go through this chronological order and you get to the present day, you have a really good understanding of how the person rolled through each position. They may have had some roles where it wasn't a good fit, but they have self-awareness to tell you that it wasn't a good fit, and they can also offer you their previous manager as a resource to call and have a conversation.
1: So they have to put the info of the manager at that point too?
0: They do. There's whole premises around the idea of what's called TORC. TORC is T-O-R-C, and it stands for Threat of Reference Check. And so the idea is rather than asking the potential candidate for names of references, you simply are asking them for the name of each manager they've had throughout their career history And then based on their dialogue, you're going to go ahead and ask your candidate to go ahead and reach out to some of those managers and have a discussion and explain that, look, I'm interviewing for Alligator Tech. I think it'd be a great role. As a friend, would you mind having a conversation to see if maybe you could share my experience there so they can better coach and mentor?
1: So do only A players actually end up filling out the whole thing?
0: It's interesting, right? So many people come to the table, they'll do it. But not everyone is as transparent. Those people who are self-aware. Do you mean lying by transparent? Yes.
1: (laughs) Okay, I just wanted to make sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've had people that are amazing fit. And I'm like, let's do this. Can you send me the name of John, Mike, and Henry and how I can get a hold of John, Mike, and Henry? And we'll have a call and we'll be ready to move. And then I'll get the email that says, you know, on further consideration, I'm not ready to consider this role. In one case, I had an individual come to me and say, I just wanted to call out that I exaggerated my salary. I thought I'd call it out now because you're about to have that reference. And so did you hire that person? Yeah, I, I admired the candor, but no, unfortunately, this <laughs> a pretty big breach. I couldn't go back that far. <laughs> It seems like the people who are leaving those other jobs, if they were A players,
1: that why would they want to leave the other jobs?
0: Yeah, it has a lot to do with where our focus is around really developing a mission and a vision and core values. Some of those things seem like very much like, yeah, I've heard those. But oftentimes those items get posted on a wall, but people aren't necessarily living and breathing that within the organization. To your question, why would someone leave another company and come here? It would be because, one... They espouse those. And two, once you start to create a garden of eight players, people want to be in and around that environment because they recognize that you're, it's just like a garden. You're continually curating it when you're finding a person that's not a good fit. Doesn't mean they're a bad person, but they're not a good fit for the organization and you're coaching them out. So you're continually weeding the garden and people sometimes If they're A players, they want to be in an environment where everyone's carrying their own weight and they're learning more from the people around. them. Have you always been an A player? Personally, I would say that I've always had a really hard work ethic, but it isn't always about hard work. It's often about results. Personally, there are areas where I've excelled and there are other areas where I've had to grow. So take, for instance, business development. I think I've been a B player in some years in the past around my business development skills. I just didn't aspire and put the work in that it required. Whereas today, I take it much more seriously.
1: Was there a reason why? The reason why I took it more seriously? Uh, Yeah, versus like like when you were saying you were a B player before.
0: Yeah, I think I wanted to delegate some of the responsibility to someone else. It wasn't something that I necessarily got jazzed up about. So I figured I could get someone else to do it. And I was doing it in a half-baked fashion. When I recognized, look, this is my role and responsibility. Then I stepped up to the
1: plate. I think we all go through things like that. I mean, I can take the example for this podcast. I probably had a B player who was first editing the first 20 or so episodes. And then after that, I just realized it wasn't good enough. And Hey, I don't want to go back. I didn't listen to every editing, edited one, right? Cause I didn't want to, I didn't feel like, I'm like, I got someone else I'm delegating to, but at the end of the day, I'm like, this is going to be my final thing. And after I started listening to them, they weren't good enough to my standard. So wow, I had to go back and literally do all first 20 episodes myself. And, it's not fun, but those are the little things that I think you talking about or maybe me necessarily talking about is that you're like, okay, but I did learn a lot from it. I've learned to try to hopefully stop using as many filler words and et because <laughs> it's not fun editing. I'll tell you that at least for me, for some people it is though, but So sure. sometimes you realize you have to do it or else if you don't, then you're not going to move on.
0: Well, as an entrepreneur yourself, you took ownership of the situation and realized that if you wanted the results, then you had to roll up your sleeves and make it happen.
1: And I think that that's it at the end of the day. You got to realize that you have to take the blame. I think you had talked about that before. Things aren't getting done. It's the bottleneck. Like You have to look back at yourself that I wasn't doing something obviously right enough. No one really wants to blame themselves, but eventually you have to. I guess, was there a point that you learned that? Because I think too many people do the blame game. They try to blame somebody else, why they're at where they are in life, etc. But you just got to look within. You asked me to figure it out.
0: I couldn't say it better myself. Even as we talk about A players and B players and C players, my ability to bring the wrong people into the organization or to bring those people into the organization and not mentor and coach them to grow personally and professionally, that's on me. It's easy to blame the individual, but it's really up to the coach to bring out the talent and the performance. And so I take full responsibility. And so as we look to get to version four, That's our biggest piece is being that better mentor, leader, and coach.
1: Do you think you figured that out from the entrepreneur's organization or was it just talking to other entrepreneurs or how did you figure that out?
0: Yeah. So at the end of the day, an an organization is all about its people. So while Mm -hmm. I attributed to EO, it's about being around specific people in that organization that kind of showed the way and then led the way.
1: What's the biggest thing that you got, like piece of advice that helped you grow?
0: I think the biggest piece that's been important for me is recognizing the value of investing early in your business and that if you can invest in capital, specifically human capital, as I mentioned earlier, that get the best people, the brightest people as early as possible in your journey, that they're going to be your the people you can lock arms with and really grow your business.
1: Do you want to close up version three and talk about version four? Because that was 2011. You're we talking about version three, right?
0: Yep. Version 3 takes us to the current year, and it's in this current year that here we are in 27 working on version 4.0. And the difference between that and where we're going is I've been a founder and CEO of this organization for a really long time. It's over this last year that I've recognized my unique ability. And unique ability is something where you're really good at it, that you are energized when you do it, passionate about it. And at the end of the day, you actually draw more energy than when you started. So this idea of excellence, passion, and energy, and recognizing that really being in the sales role is what I can contribute the most to the organization. And letting others lead and run the organization is going to be our next catalyst to be able to take this organization and kind of do a hockey stick maneuver.
1: Your role as of a year ago was what, and now you're going to get more into sales?
0: Yeah, I would say that my role previously was much more of being a CEO and one where I managed people and now of more about helping drive revenue for the organization and taking the organization. Let's just
1: pretend that someone who's listening wants to be CEO. What's something that they don't know, that you know, that you figured out after you got up there, after all these years of growing a business?
0: That you can't learn early enough in life how to be a good communicator and a good leader of people. And that if I could wind the clock back, I would have invested in myself more to have learned some of these skills back when I thought the technical arenas of running a business were the most important. So learning how to manage a p or learning how to work around HR rules or how to handle marketing are really valuable. And they're the technical pieces to growing a business. But the strategic growth comes to growing yourself and knowing how to grow others. And that is a skill that I continue to work at today and will probably for a very long time. It'll be a lifelong exercise, but I've got a long way to go. So did anything negative happen during this whole journey? Yeah, I would say that It's very much a roller coaster of running your business. People think about companies and how they grow and they think that perhaps it's a linear progression that just starts from zero and skyrockets out there. And it's really much more about squiggly curve that yes, you have high highs, but you've got some lows in there as well. There's plateaus and there's even low points where you're down and you've got to come back and come up. We've had our share of those, right? So. To fight.
1: What was the lowest low point?
0: You know, I don't know if I can think of one episode. Clearly when we've had years where we've lost people that we've treasured, right? Either because they were not a good fit from our side or they found other opportunities. Those were always a bit more challenging because they take time. But then also years where frankly we had deals that we thought we would close and they didn't close. And so then We weren't able to get to the next level. I would say to your question, is there a specific low point? It's more the collective of those experiences that make it challenging.
1: Yeah. How about personally?
0: Personally, I think my company is my vehicle to grow individually. I think without it, I wouldn't have to stretch and look inside as much as I do. I could just feel really good about the material gains that we have. But to your earlier point, when you have to look inside and say, wait, what am I doing right? Or what am I not doing? That's tough. And it requires the ability to be humble and not beat yourself up. But at the same token, be ready to look and say, what am I going to do and change tomorrow? The company is my vehicle for getting there.
1: Was there a point in the time that you're beating yourself up too much?
0: I think I do that less and less every day. I'm not sure if there was any specific point, but yeah, sure. I feel sorry for myself more often than I should. It's the ability, the saying goes, it's not a matter of whether you fall in the gap, the gap being the difference between the ideal and where you're at. It's how quickly you get out of the gap. And so that's what I managed to today. It's not a matter of if I'll fall in the gap, it's a matter of when. But how quickly can I get out of it? How quickly can I take show gratitude for everything that's right around me and the potential that's out there?
1: What's your lifestyle now looking back? Can you just tell us about that in the beginning when you're at your parents house, how often you're
0: working, how it's
1: progressed over time?
0: So from a lifestyle perspective, quickly, I, uh, you know, I started out as single. I now have, I'm married. I have two daughters who are college age and beyond. And so I've kind of take grown a family through my journey in the business. As far as when it was a lifestyle business during those early years, I took the luxury of being able to blend family and work together. Didn't necessarily have separation of church and state, which meant that I was always there for every event, but I never really turned it off. Today, I am much more around finding time for yoga and the opportunity to eat right and energies. There's a great book that I read called The Power of Full Engagement. It really looks to what are your energy sources? What are the things that you draw energy from and what are the things that drain you. And part of that for me has been around seeking a balance around making sure I take care of myself and everyone around me, not just taking care of the company.
1: Do you have any tips on like what gives you energy versus what takes away energy? I know it might be a little bit different for everybody, but at least for me personally, maybe we can get some ideas where we can think about that.
0: Three things that are very, very basic, but that are very, very important are sleep. I strive for eight hours a night I'm not always there. There are times I have to stretch and do less, but I know that I'm a better human being for everyone around me when I'm well-rested. The second is around eating properly and on time. And again, having a ritual around that, not just working it in. And then the last is around water, just really drinking a healthy amount of water. Those three things seem very basic. Everyone's heard of them. And yet so few people have tried it. And I would encourage anyone, if you do those three things for a period of 21 days and you don't feel better and, and live better, I'd be surprised.
1: When did you start implementing that?
0: Probably over the last three years. I've started to do that and then, you know, just become more and more cognizant of it this past year.
1: You're saying that you're switching over more to the sales role. Do you have any tips on that for someone who's
0: getting started? I would say that there's an old saying that revenue cures all ills. I've never been a big fan of that because it seems like you're masking a lot of internal challenges and just going out there and selling more to make that happen. But the counter of that is true as well. The idea that if you focus on everything else and you build it and they will come could be a fallacy. Having proper focus on the engine, we today have about 75 people in the organization. And as much as I'm curious and concerned about the culture in the organization, I recognize the best thing I can do for those 74 other people is to go out there and slay the dragon, help bring that home. Then I can being here and present for each of them.
1: What do you mean by that? When you're doing a sale today, are you going to those big companies, selling them on Alligator Tech Can Do? Are these you know past clients? Can you give us an example?
0: Yeah. So it's kind of a mix of a variety of different marketing strategies. We work through centers of influence, which means partners that could where it could be mutually symbiotic and we can help them and they can help us. It's partly through online marketing and looking at how that can be a driver for bringing leads to us. But a lot of it is the ability to build relationships, get referrals, the opportunity to market to organizations, large and small, to be able to tell them how can we solve their problem, that's what we really look for is like, how can we really solve their business problem once and for all, and that we can be an agent to make that happen. If they don't have something of that nature, then we're the wrong fit.
1: I've asked this question before, and we throw these Q&A on the website and within the show notes, but I was asking you your favorite software or something that's helped you grow. And what was it?
0: I would say that Trello has been a huge benefit to me, but as well to others in the organization and being able to manage all that they come up to and have to tackle on a given day.
1: When did you find out about that? And can you just explain maybe what it was before using that and, and what it is like now today? Right. So the uh,
0: concept is of uh, rather than having a to-do list or a long laundry list of things that you want to get done, the idea that we embarked on about two years ago is to really manage those through cards in Trello so that we can manage to what's the important things that need to get done and what's the decision process to get to the next point.
1: Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying all of our episodes. If you are, then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts. Just search for Millionaire Interviews in your podcast player. And be sure to look for the Chuck Norris album artwork. Thanks again for tuning in. I personally started using it. I like it a lot just because it's simplistic too. I think too much software. Overcomplicates things. Agreed. As far as when you're trying to communicate with people, I've tried them all. <laughs> simplistic is works works well for me. So, so now I guess looking back, what's the biggest piece of advice that you might have for anyone who wants to start their own company, or maybe they're at a bigger company like you were before,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and making that transition? What do you think is the biggest piece of advice you can give them?
0: I would say look for an opportunity where you're going to be able to really solve a need in the marketplace something that you're going to be able to do that you see there's a gap. People will buy that which they need. And if you're filling that need, want, dream, desire, or void, then you know you've got something. For us, it's looking for companies where they have a broken process and saying, hey, if we fix this process, could we help you either increase your revenue or decrease your expenses? And that's where our value prop is. And I'd encourage people to kind of think about what can you do for people. What
1: do you see as success going forward for you,
0: you personally and your company? My own personal mission is around to whom much is given, much is expected. And so our company is really around software to fuel growth. And so we're looking to, to help companies scale. And so that's where I see an opportunity for our company and for me personally to help individuals grow personally and professionally so they can kind of be given that opportunity to scale.
1: Is there a certain size that a company needs a B to approach you? Because let's just say someone's listening. Maybe they own a company or they're part of a company and they're like, hey, maybe we might be able to use y'all.
0: Yeah, we help a variety of different organizations, but I would say our typical sweet spot is gets down to be about as low as 10 million and gets to be as large as probably around 500 million. The sweet spot for us centers in there right around starting at 50 million on up. And you're talking about revenue, not employees, right? That's right. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> Thanks, Austin. Mention. for the <laughs> <today>. <laughs> All
1: right. We appreciate you joining us. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to do that for you?
0: You know, a best way would probably be to go ahead, send me a, a direct message on Twitter. My handle is at Sid Bala, S-I-D-B-A-L-A. Thank you, Sid, for joining us. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate the effort and appreciate the invite.